The world is facing a food crisis. At least 828 million people went hungry one way or another on a daily basis last year. And not even the wealthiest of countries are an exception. Americans are feeling the pinch of rapidly rising prices at the supermarket. In the United States, the issue goes beyond food prices increasing. For some, it has to do with being close to a supermarket. The truth is that Northwest Roanoke has been clamoring for the opportunity to have their own grocery store for over 20 years. And for African Americans, years of discriminatory practices have complicated their access to their own farmland to feed their communities. Over the past century, African Americans have lost millions of acres of farms they owned across the South. However, there is a movement pushing for community-owned spaces where they can grow their own food. In Detroit, cooperatives and community land trusts have been critical to rethinking the use of urban vacant lots to produce healthy food for people who don't have access to those resources. I'm Hala Mahiadeen, and this is The Take. While today's food crisis is a pressing issue, for many Americans, this is deeply rooted in history. My name is Kofi Boone. I'm a professor of landscape architecture and environmental planning at NC State University in North Carolina in the United States. I teach primarily about environmental justice issues, issues of social equity in the landscape. That's interesting. You're a professor in landscape architecture, mm-hmm. and you also co-authored an article about black land loss. How do those two fields connect? You know, it's a really great question. It really came out of the summer of 2020 and the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and the mass movements that were happening in our country and across the world. And what we were looking at is that we usually uh, work with clients or communities who own or control land and help them to shape it and come up with a a well uh, thought through future for what those places could be. But we often don't take a step back and look at these grander patterns of land dispossession, ownership, displacement, and how that's actually contributed to some of the social challenges that we face right now. Now, in that article, you wrote that black land ownership decreased by 98% over the past century because of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's discriminatory practices. What exactly were they doing? It's a good question. That's what we know of rural land. We don't have good information on urban land or other landscapes. But uh, generally speaking, in the Reconstruction era, the era right after the American Civil War, there were, in addition to new amendments that enabled African-American citizens, there was a sense of how land was important to create wealth and a foundation for these brand new Americans. During this era, the United States government had plans to take land from former plantation owners and distribute it to formerly enslaved African-Americans with the promise of 40 acres and a mule to each person. 40 acres and a mule, it turns out that didn't come to pass. Uh, They assumed that maybe around 300,000 acres were redistributed to this program, but initially it was a federal imperative to uh, uh, enable uh, black Americans to have a resource and a land base. But after Lincoln's assassination, reparations were halted. 
A new president, Andrew Johnson, reversed the decisions and gave land back to white landowners. And that's the beginning of what we call in America the Jim Crow era. And even during that time, African-Americans did have land. Uh, they weren't very rich, they weren't making a lot of money. Fast forward to the mid-20th century, the United States continued discriminatory land practices through the United States Department of Agriculture, establishing the Agricultural Stabilization Conservation Service. And that delegated incredible powers to an elected committee of three in rural counties that could disperse at their discretion information, access to home loans, building and property loans, and these were essential for farmers uh, who were indebted, uh, who were uh, really heavily uh, you know, struggling to, to kind of make their life on the land. These boards were mostly white and disconnected from black farmers. Because it's USDA, they had to document. So there's a paper trail that talks about, you know, essentially a, a 50 to 60 year period of legal discrimination against African-American and black farmers, lack of access to information, lack of support for pursuing loans, lack of access to capital for buildings and for other activities. So after almost a century of that process, results are 98% of that land was lost. But the government was not the only reason small and black farmers lost land. It was also because corporations were taking over their land and the industry. Because of the global shift in agriculture, where not just black farmers, but all kind of smallholder farmers uh, were essentially losing their economic livelihood to large corporate farming interests, uh, that uh, a lot of the damage had been done by that point. Corporate farms, which are largely disconnected from local communities, are able to choose which neighbourhoods and communities they consider more profitable to serve. Kofi says he personally experienced the consequences of this growing up in Detroit, Michigan, a predominantly black city. He says it was nearly impossible to find a supermarket in the entire city. So that was just sort of a, a normal growing up, was that, oh yeah, if we went up we had to go to the suburbs, uh, or we had to go to more affluent communities that all had you know, grocery stores. And so, you know, being trained in design and planning, it helped me understand the logic. And so, although we see it as a necessity to get an access to healthy food, uh, from an economic standpoint, it's one of the least profitable businesses to be in. Kofi's experience is not unique. For many, this has become a motivator to grow their own food. Cam Terry is a black farmer in northwest Roanoke, an area of Virginia in the US, with a large black population. He says that for his community, grocery stores are not only far, but dangerous to get to. There is no grocery store within maybe about two and a half miles, but there's a eight-lane highway between you and that grocery store. Cam, who has been farming since 2017, is crowdfunding right now to purchase a community farm. We hope that putting a functioning, productive vegetable farm can not just provide food to people, but it's more about like the education that we can provide, the hope that we can provide, and the opportunities for people to kind of come on 
and learn something about what they can do with their own property. Cam says that his hopes are that this farm becomes a community space where everyone in northwest Roanoke can farm and pick their own produce. And so, you know, my hope is that in three to five years, we have a, a beautiful bustling farm with an open gate policy that at certain times of year, people can come on and participate in you pick raspberries or you pick plums or persimmons um, and kind of take some of the uh, farm labor off of my plate and still be able to provide those foods to people who want a bit more of an immersive farm experience. But land ownership comes in different forms these days. Cam is not actually looking to own the land. Instead, he's hoping to use the money to buy the land for the community and then lease it back from them to farm and provide them with food. I don't really have a a compulsion to own the land, per se. Like, I don't even really know what that phrase means. When we people who are going to be here for 80 years or 100 years and we say that we own a patch of ground that's been there for 5 billion years, I think it's a bit of human hubris to phrase it in that way. He is processing a 99-year lease through the Agrarian Land Trust, a nationwide organisation that supports local farmers hoping to hold long-term leases for community-held land. Their mission is to support sustainable food production and secure equitable land access for farmers and ranchers. One of their main principles as an organisation is to advance racial justice in farmland ownership. When I learned about the agrarian commons and their concept of community-owned farmland on which they can place a farmer in a long-term equitable lease, it just seemed like Their values just really meshed with what I was envisioning. The idea of the agrarian commons is that a community owns farmland and works on the land together. There are currently 12 agrarian commons across the United States, some of which are black-owned and operated. And so the commons enabled us to secure a deal and set us up to make some of the necessary infrastructure improvements to make my business successful there. And so that's that's what we did. We kind of took a leap of faith and launched this public fundraiser to pay for the land so that this land can be taken into the commons and it'll forever be farmland in the middle of the city providing food for the people that live nearby. This work is being done by other organisations too. When I met Kenya Crummel, who is part of the Black Food Justice Alliance, she was taking a break after working on the farm. I am in a a one-week farm immersion program for black and brown people, and we are doing everything from learning soil science to basic weeding and caring for the crops and and so you're getting your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's just been a beautiful experience. And this is only day two. <laughs> it's been wonderful. Yeah. And you're feeding the chickens as well. Yes. And the goats. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful space. Kenya's work as the director of Black Lands and Power for the Black Food Justice Alliance includes a land acquisition project of 105 acres. We have a North Star of 
removing 15 million acres of land from the speculative market. And I know it's, it sounds crazy, but you know, it's a, something that excites me every day and I look forward to working on it. We're, and it's not for us, the Alliance, to hold title to per se, but we work in partnership with organizations who will then steward the land. Just like Cam, Kenya is hoping that this land becomes a consistent food source in the rural Georgia area where it's located in the southern United States. Land is, is our freedom and our independence, right? And that's how we get food to our communities. And so if we are not able to grow the food that we need and we're not able to then distribute that food to communities that are impacted by food apartheid and get healthy, affordable options, then we continue to be afflicted by poor health. You know, our goal as an organization is to create an entire food system that we have the power to control. Once the food is grown, how do we make sure that it is getting to our communities and that it's quality food and that it's affordable food? Kenya and CAM and their representative organizations place an emphasis on communities sustaining themselves. But many black farmers are asking for government action. I asked Kofi about what the U.S. government has done recently to right these wrongs. So black farmers use this documented information to talk about these patterns of discrimination. They asked for some form of reparation of around $20 billion was the amount that they figured was appropriate based on the damage and the harm done. They were promised $1.2 billion of that $20 billion ask. Kofi is referring to a 1999 lawsuit against the United States Department of Agriculture called Pigford versus Glickman. And unfortunately, those resources were never distributed. There have been recent follow-ups to the lawsuit to address the failures of distributing funds to black farmers from the original court case. However, most recent updates to farmer relief policies take away direct help for black farmers and allows farmers from any racial background to apply for aid. And the disappointing part regarding that is the politics of it, which is to say that they want to now provide funds, a much smaller sum, to people based solely on economic need and not on this legacy of racial discrimination. And so it's it, there have been very big and strong movements in class action efforts led by Black farmers, particularly with rural land dispossession, but they have faced a lot of obstacles. And this is a fight that's, just so our listeners are aware, this is continuing today. Yes. Yes, you may have heard of the Inflation Reduction Act, a recent policy passed under this administration, celebrated for the largest investment made in climate funding and Medicare cost caps and a number of other elements embedded in that uh, is what remains of the settlement for Pupri 2. And so that's where uh, a lot of the current uh, conversation is happening. This fight continues with community-owned lands like the agrarian commons we talked about before. But those spaces are often white-owned and operated. So there has been a push for black communal spaces. So, Kofi, 
Your article also talks about the idea of black commons. Can you just explain what that is? Sure. Um, the idea of the commons, because of capitalism and self-interested economic decisions, we are incapable of maintaining collective resources. So sort of a commentary on our inability to uh, work outside of our individual uh, economic interests. Their idea was that this extreme loss, disparities in wealth and land ownership between white and black in our country meant that working individually as individual community land trusts may not be enough to meet the scale of the issue. So they envisioned this idea of a black commons, a decentralized network sort of managed together to grow up and scale to meet the, the challenges. So I asked Cam and Kenya, who are both building their own versions of commons, what their hopes are for the future of communal spaces. I think that community land ownership of farmland is a revolutionary idea, and it takes so much of the burden off of people who simply want to provide for their communities and can really start to kind of shift the paradigm of what a local food system is expected or able to do if we can, you know, put secure land access in the hands of, you know, many more farmers. There are a lot of groups purchasing land, moving from urban areas to rural areas, and and they're seeking just freedom and peace. And, you know, we've been caught up in the hustle and bustle and we, just like everybody else, we want a quality of life that's free from the stresses. So, Kofi, when you look at the the past, the present, and then with an eye looking forward to the future, are you optimistic for the roads ahead? I'm hopeful because it's so decentralized. And I think that's different, at least from uh, when I was in school, you know, I was taught to think about big vision, right? So if something takes 20 or 30 years, it takes 20 or 30 years and you just got to wait. But we're in the generation now of, you know, they don't wait. You know, uh, they, they, they want to act and they want to have impact. So many people who are having these conversations, who are looking at their landscapes in different ways, who are hungry to find out more about their history, who have the imperative either public health or a sense of safety and security that, that's pushing in that way. So I think it's so pervasive now that that, that gives me some hope that 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 accumulation of effort will, will result in some positive things. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Chloe K. Lee with Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, and me, Hala Mahiyadeen. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Malek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. And Ney Alvarez is our head of audio. We'll be back 